It was 1985. Ray-Bans, leg warmers, and cocaine were all the rage. In that year, Disney released an unofficial sequel to The Wizard of Oz. How do you recapture the magic of the most beloved children's film of all time? Just add electroshock therapy, decapitation, and necromancy. On this episode, we discuss Return to Oz. This is Childhood Fears Revisited. Welcome to Childhood Fears Revisited, the podcast where we look under the bed. I'm your host, Patrick. And I'm Kat. And today we are going to discuss the 1985 Disney film, Return to Oz. But we're not doing it alone. We have a guest. Kat, who do we have with us today? Our guest today is Megan. Hello, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Megan Stewart is a newspaper reporter in Oregon and an unlikely horror movie aficionado. Megan, you suggested this movie. How did you come to see it in the first place? And tell us a little bit about how and why it scared you as a kid. Yeah, I think I was about between eight and nine years old. And my brother and I, around that time, would go with my mom to Blockbuster every weekend when that was still a thing. And we would rent a movie or two. I think one day I was the one to discover this movie. And I'd always loved Wizard of Oz as a kid. So I jumped at the chance to watch its sequel. And so my mom, who was very careful about what she exposed to us on TV, as we came from a conservative Christian family, we weren't allowed to watch Harry Potter or any other sort of scary or non-wholesome films. But she thought this was probably a pretty good movie for kids to watch since Wizard of Oz is fairly tame. So we'd watch that fairly frequently. And when we would come home, she'd pop it into the VCR and we'd watch that. And she'd go into the other room and do chores or read a book or do whatever she did for fun on the weekends. And we'd watch it and be on the edge of our seats and be totally creeped out by it. But why is that? I think it just had everything. Parents were out of the picture. You were with strange adults who could pretty much do anything they wanted to you. There were creepy little creatures running around, high stakes, just everything that would potentially scare a little kid at the time. I actually talked to my mom about the movie's content a week or two ago, and I told her basically the basic plot. And she was like, I will let you watch that. That's... Sounds terrifying. Uh, Yeah, she had no idea at the time what it was about or that it even it scared us because we wouldn't have told her that because we wanted to keep watching it. You both knew that this was inappropriate viewing that would not pass parental supervision if they were aware. Yes, I I think I was aware even back then that I was sheltered. So I, I in my head, yeah, it scared me, but I don't think a lot of kids would be freaked out by it. At the time, I thought it was no big deal that I was scared about it because I thought I shouldn't be because I lived a sheltered life. I was just very protective over it because it was something that I thought other people were watching. So other kids my age were watching. So I wanted to be able to watch it, too. That makes sense. And I'll tell you what one of the things that 
interested me about this is this movie was released in 1985. So I was the age that you saw it when it first came out. I was right in its wheelhouse. So I'm nine years old in 1985. Wow. I'd never seen this movie. I had barely had any recollection that this movie existed. I don't know if anybody saw this when it came out. I don't know how it it doesn't look like it was very popular. The critics reviews of it weren't great, but it definitely wasn't my consciousness at all. So this was interesting watching this. And I could imagine watching this as a kid, even the positive elements of it are terrifying. Right. Her friends in this are creepy, not the least of which is Jack Pumpkinhead. The scarecrow in this is terrifying. So I could imagine if I had seen this when I was nine years old, this might have ended up on my list, too. Let's talk a little bit about the movie before we start. Released in 1985. It's based on the L. Frank Baum books, The Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz. It was directed by Walter Murch. It was the only film he ever directed, but he is a legendary Hollywood sound designer and film editor. Let me give you a list of movies that this guy has either edited or done the sound design for. See if you've heard of any of these. The Godfather, American Graffiti, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now, The English Patient, and The Talented Mr. Ripley. He received three Oscars for that work, but he never directed another film after this, which is probably for the best. What a resume. The film stars Feruza Balk as Dorothy. I wasn't really familiar with her, but she was in The Craft. She was in American History X and The Waterboy. Hasn't had a real big film career, but as I go through the casts in these movies i try to find connective tissue to the horror genre and boy did i find one i did not expect this jean marsh she co-stars as miss wilson and princess mombi now this film stays true to the original movie by having actors play characters in both kansas and in oz I don't know if this is going to mean anything to the two people on this call, but to horror movie buffs, they'll know this one. She played George C. Scott's wife in The Changeling. Now, The Changeling is one of my all-time favorite horror films. It is a Canadian film that came out in 1980. It's a haunted house movie. Really good. So you're probably asking me, hey, If it's one of your favorite movies and she was in it, how come you didn't recognize her? That's because George C. Scott's wife, spoiler alert for a movie that came out in 1980, George C. Scott's wife dies about two minutes into the movie. And that scene that she's in still terrifies me. If I watch The Changeling, I have to turn my head when that scene comes up when she dies because it is so disturbing. Wow. That says a lot. So- Horror movie royalty. But other than that, not too many people that you really heard of out of a lot of British actors, minor television actors, not much there. But the acting in the cast, pretty good, pretty good for the film. With that being said, we will take a little break and we will come back with a breakdown of Return to Oz. 
See you then. Welcome back for the breakdown. The movie opens with Dorothy and Toto laying in bed. Dorothy is wide awake, staring out the window, clearly longing for Oz. The film takes place a few months after the events of The Wizard of Oz, somewhere around the turn of the 20th century. Uncle Henry and Aunt Em are worried about Dorothy's sanity because she keeps on talking about Oz. Uncle Henry is reading a newspaper clipping about electric healing by one Dr. J.B. Worley. This is clearly electroshock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, even though it wasn't really in use until the 1940s. Aunt M decides to send her to this doctor, sort of a heel turn for Aunt M. I just can't see paying out money for this doctor when we don't have any. Garnet said she'd loan it to us. That's charity, Em. She's my sister's family, not charity. Hannah, it's been six months since the tornado, and Dorothy hasn't been herself since. I'm taking her to Cottonwood Falls tomorrow to see if she can be helped. All she ever talks about is someplace that just doesn't exist. Talking tin men, walking scarecrows, ruby slippers. So Aunt Em and Uncle Henry are concerned about Dorothy. Obviously, she returned and told everybody about what happened at Oz, and now they all think she's nuts. And it takes a little bit of adjustment here if you're coming off the Wizard of Oz movie, which we covered before, the 1939 one, to adjust to this one because Dorothy is a lot younger in appearance than the Dorothy whom we left off with. And this is yeah. not a prequel, right? This is a sequel. And Annie M is not Annie M anymore. She's Aunt M and possibly a lot more somber and maybe even a little severe. A, a little severe? She's just agreed to send Dorothy <laughs> off to get electroshock therapy. I don't think Annie M in the original Wizard of Oz would do that to her. But remember, she's trying to help intentions are there she's sending her to state-of-the-art therapy right she's just being a good aunt here yeah one thing we didn't mention about this movie that is a complete tone shift from the original is it's not a musical this is a straight film there's no musical interludes there's no happy singing munchkins none of that this is a straight fantasy film and it's not it's not a traditional sequel. It clearly alludes to the former movie, but it's almost an adaptation of the sequels to the book, The Wizard of Oz, because they refer to things as we go forward that happen in the book that don't take place in the original movie. Maybe the director's intention was to be true to the books rather than be influenced by that movie that was so prominent at this point anyway so yeah it's like a different track you're entering a different parallel universe of dorothy and oz at this point dorothy sees a shooting star and the next morning she finds a key in the yard that says oz or no depending on which way you hold the key 
key to the old house before the tornado. I must have turned it a thousand times. No, look, Aunt Tam, it's proof. O-Z, Oz. Dorothy? My friend sent it to me on a shooting star. Remember how we spoke? Not to talk about Oz. Why? Because it's just my imagination. I know you don't want to go to the doctors, but you just haven't slept the night right through since the tornado. And then you're no help to me in the morning. And him. My friends are in trouble. I know it. We are in trouble, Dorothy. Lost the old house in the tornado. Never before had to have a mortgage. Now we may have to have two. Winter's coming on. New house and finished. He broke his leg, Aunt Tam. Dorothy, that leg's mended. It's mended. Hurry up and get yourself ready. We're going to be late. Dorothy shows the key to Aunt M, who dismisses it. This is when we find out that the house had been destroyed, the family is in dire straits, winter is coming, the house is not rebuilt yet, and Uncle Henry is suffering from depression. Things are pretty rough for the Gale family. And then you think about the time period, you're talking about Midwest, Midwest farmers around the turn of the century. Not a great place to live i'm guessing i'm not a product of the of the prairie but i've got to imagine at that point in time it was a pretty rough life yeah and winter is coming you do know what midwest winters are like and <laughs> under the best of circumstances it's a challenge i like annie m's motivation reveal in this little passage the reason that she needs to fix dorothy is what because She's no help to her in the morning. It's utilitarian. Yeah. Very practical. Business is business. Got to help around the farm. Okay. So, by the way, this is the scene where we are, oddly, introduced to one of the main characters of this film, a hen named Belina, who in this scene is threatened to be made into a stew. But make no mistake. This chicken is a crucial character to the plot. Keep an eye on Belina. With the decision made to send Dorothy off to this special treatment, Dorothy and Ann M head to the doctor and have to leave Toto behind in probably the most heartbreaking scene in the film. Clearly, Toto knows that where Dorothy goes, there will be danger. Plus, apparently, Toto's contract ran out, so he doesn't get to spend any time in the sequel, because this is the last time we're going to see Toto until the very end of the movie. 
This is a terribly heart-wrenching scene. And they draw it out. Like it could have been a quick, Toto, you're in the door. Shut the door and keep Toto in the house. But it's this long, painful goodbye. And this this scene actually took me out of like feeling as if this had very many ties to the original film because Toto was just so synonymous with Wizard of Oz. Wizard of he was Oz the hero. Film. Yeah. And then just seeing him be replaced with the chicken. I didn't even remember the chicken before really? I rewatched this. Yeah. Wow. Chicken's and memorable. Just, for me, apparently she wasn't. <laughs> so it felt, and I think as a kid, it had some elements of Wizard of Oz, obviously, but it felt like a, as Kat said earlier, like a, a parallel sort of world a little bit. So that, that was the send off to Toto and everything we thought we knew about Oz. So Anne M and Dorothy make it to the doctor's place. Dorothy recounts the grim details of the actual story of the Wizard of Oz, including how the Tin Man became the Tin Man. The Tin Woodsman used to be made of flesh, like everybody else, but then he cut off his leg. He had a tin leg made, but then a witch enchanted his axe, and he kept on cutting off all the other parts of his body until he was all made of tin. Even his head was... That's all right, Dorothy. Yeah, so that is true to the original Wizard of Oz. The Tin Man cuts his limbs off, and they have to be systematically replaced with tin. They didn't mention that in the original movie. So the doctor questions Dorothy and he's very skeptical about her story. He asks her about the ruby slippers. He asks her all about Oz. Then he pulls out the electroshock therapy machine and boy, does he make it sound nice. Well, I think I know just the thing Cheer Dorothy up. This electrical marvel will make it possible for you to sleep again. And it will also get rid of all those bad waking dreams that you've been telling me about. Now this fella here has a face. You see it? Here are his eyes. And this must be his nose, and this must be his mouth. But what's this, Dorothy? Why, it's his tongue, <laughs> isn't it? Will it hurt? Well, no, 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 no. It just manages electrical current. Now your aunt already knows that we are at the dawn of a new age. In just two months, it will be the year 1900, a new century, the 20th century, a century of electricity. The brain itself is an electrical machine. It's nothing but a machine. He's playing this up as a pleasant experience for Dorothy, clearly not telling the truth about what Dorothy has in store for her. And this is really where I think the movie takes it's dark turn because this portion of the film, I would say, is 
the most traditionally dark section of the film because we get into kind of the dark history of psychology and kind of the treatments that we now look back on and think of as barbaric, right? And we are having one of the most beloved characters in all of film and literature about to be subjected to it. Yeah, this was actually one of the most terrifying scenes for me. This is one of the biggest ones for me because you see your protector just leave and you yourself can sense that something's wrong in the situation, but they think you're paranoid because you're a child and you don't know better, but you do in this instance, and you're left behind with people that you know don't have your best interests at heart. And I think this is just such a standard kind of situation for many children. It's like, a lot of times adults think that kids don't know things or they're just being kids. Like they can't really trust their judgment or whatever. But there are a lot of times that kids aren't believed in, about certain situations that, that are dangerous to them. And it's just a common thing that kids go through. And I think it's a very valid fear. And so I think, yeah, that was definitely one thing that, that freaked me out is being put in that position where I'm in danger. But no one believes me that it is. And which is, which is an interesting kind of thought experiment, right? So we have a little kid. That kid comes to us and says, hey, I just got back from a place over the rainbow. I killed two witches. I made friends with a scarecrow that could sing and dance. I made friends with a cowardly lion who gnawed on his tail. There was a man made of tin who had an axe. I was chased by flying monkeys, uh, and now I've returned to you. As an adult, from Aunt M's point of view, you probably think that kid has an overactive imagination. And if they keep going, and they keep going, and they keep insisting that it is true, I think you might be tempted to take her off to an institute somewhere. So you're cutting Aunt M some slack here, giving the adult perspective a little credence. Yeah, because the whole film, the whole book series is told from Dorothy's perspective. Let's give uh, Anne M the benefit of the doubt on this one. Now, I don't know if I'd ship her off to have electroshock therapy. That might be a little harsh. All right. This is the first time in this scene that Dorothy sees the ghostly girl in the reflection. This will happen periodically throughout the movie. Very common ghost story trope. There's a ghost in the mirror. Occasionally, the ghost materializes and visits a character, which she does here. But Aunt M leaves Dorothy behind with the doctor and a black-gowned, clearly evil head nurse, Miss Wilson. Head nurse. That is foreshadowing, my friends. The nurse and the doctor give each other evil looks. As the nurse leads Dorothy to her room, we begin to understand the nature of this establishment. It is an actual old-timey asylum. In her room, Dorothy is visited by the ghostly girl again, who gives her a jack-o'-lantern. More foreshadowing. This is for you. Thank you. Halloween soon. I know. Why did they bring you here, Dorothy? 
because I can't sleep. I'm going to talk about a place that I've been to, but nobody believes it exists. ghostly girl we have a jack-o'-lantern we have thunder we have screams all the elements of horror let's talk a little bit about old-timey asylum shall we so when i'm not doing this i am a live streamer on twitch and i specialize in horror games about 90 percent of the horror games that i play take place in an old-timey asylum that looks very much like the facility we're in here. So that is a very, very common horror film, horror game, horror book trope, because I think as a society, we look back on medical care in general, but mental care specifically during that time period is a really backwards, horrible profession. And the way that patients were treated very badly. And I think there's an inherent fear of what happened in those places because of what came out years later. What was her name? Nellie Bly, who did the expose of asylums during that time period and just showed the absolute horrible conditions that patients were kept in. I think we look back on it, really the inhumane treatment of people, and it just remains this kind of elemental topic within the horror genre but just the psyche of people in general okay at this point the nurse shows up with a couple of orderlies and a very squeaky gurney foreshadowing they have come to take dorothy to quote unquote therapy lie down i'd like to sit up if i may what did your aunt tell you to do what you told me miss wilson then lie down. Why do you have to tie me down? So that you don't fall off. I came all the way from the farm and the buggy and didn't fall off. Did I hear somebody scream earlier? No. So Dorothy's being tied down to a gurney by an evil nurse and evil orderlies. She's not in a good place. Thunder in the background. This was consciously horror, right? We've seen some films where there are things that are scary just because in hindsight, they seem scary. This was a conscious decision. They made this scene and this part of the movie to scare kids. You don't make those artistic choices by accident. Right. And I like how Dorothy is such such a clear, calm headed individual at this point. Everything that she's bringing up and she's saying is boldly stated, but it's she's very much in her right mind in her dialogue in this. And everything that she says is she's just shutting her down. 
gaslighting on the parlance of our times. So Megan, at this point, are you full on relating to Dorothy when you're watching this? And is the horror intent having its effect? I think it, it does scare me when they start strapping her down, even though she she's fully care, capable of just laying there and not falling off. It just shows that they're not necessarily taking into account her abilities or her deeds. Like you said, she's in just fully with it. And they don't really seem to see that or acknowledge that and think maybe she isn't as maybe she isn't just completely off her rocker. So I think that's the terrifying part is no matter what she says, no matter what she does, they have it in their mind that they're going to do what they're going to do. And I think that's creepy. And none of them are exchanging very sympathetic looks or anything. They're just sinister. They are not tying her up for her own good. This isn't about high quality patient care. This is about we're going to strap this little girl to the table so we don't have to worry about her running away when we do what we're about to do. Yeah, it definitely makes you think as a child, like, what are they going to do that would make her want to run away? So we're about to find out in the next scene where Dorothy is taken into the electroshock therapy room where the doctor and the nurse are preparing to shock her. There's thunder outside that reminds you of a Frankenstein movie. So the reason I really wanted to clip that part is not the dialogue, but the sound effects and the music. You had the heavy thunder, the very minor key music, building suspense. In that scene, they are literally putting the paddles on the side of Dorothy's head. I was watching it was giving me anxiety. (laughs) I'm a 46 year old man and it was scaring me. I'm like, oh, my God, are they about to zap Dorothy Gale in this movie? And I can't imagine watching this when you're nine years old. I mean, that is a scene that you would see in a horror film. I could probably show you scenes in a horror film that are exactly that scene with exactly those sound effects, exactly that music. Suddenly, the power goes out, and we hear the other patients start to panic and scream, which you heard a little bit of in that clip. The doctor and the nurse leave the room to go see what's going on in the rest of the hospital. And with that, the ghostly girl shows up to help Dorothy escape. Who's there? Shh. Quick. We have to get you out of here. What's that? Screaming. Their patients have been damaged, locked in the cellar. Quick. Okay, so let's talk about the ghostly girl a little bit. I wasn't sure whether she was a good guy or a bad guy at this point. No, you don't know right now. 
I didn't know whether she was actually trying to help Dorothy or she was leading her into a trap. And there are a couple of characters like that. And I'll mention the other one later on where their motivations really aren't clear where they're coming from because she's a ghost. She's got all of the trappings of being a ghost. Her face is in the mirror. She materializes out of nowhere and dematerializes. She shows up at this moment to help Dorothy out. She's telling Dorothy, there are damaged people in the basement. So either A, she's lying to Dorothy and just trying to scare her, or B, this is actually even more horrifying than we originally imagined. A kid, there's this inherent trust and recognition in other kids, right? You see this with kids, they recognize another kid. It's like a dog recognizing another dog or something. It's, wow, instant tribe, instant connection. And I think that's part of what we're seeing here is that dynamic of we are on some equal ground here. There is a measure of social trust between us because we're both kids. And that seems to carry a lot of weight here. We're not only both kids, we're both girls. So... There's that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because when I first watched this and going forward as a kid, I never once doubted that she had good intentions, that the little ghost girl was anything but a friend. It was actually, it just like any panic or anxiety just lifted as soon as like she came in and rescued her. Because it was just like, they're going to be okay now. They have each other. I guess safety in numbers, as they say. No, and Likewise, when we watched this together for my first time seeing it as an adult, I also interpreted her as good, someone who was going to help. See, I've seen too many horror movies. <laughs> Little girls are generally not good when you're <laughs> watching a horror movie or playing That's a fair. horror video game. Especially, Little girls are bad news. You, that is stranger appear. danger. You need to run <laughs> the other direction when you see a ghostly little girl. Because she's going to eat your liver by the end. Human or other human or supernatural. Yeah, okay. you guys are way too innocent. Okay. Oh, I was definitely innocent then. I didn't know any horror tropes. So, yeah, I had not been damaged, as they say. There's a scene later on where Dorothy and... Who we will learn is Ozma. I'll just spoil it right here. Well, so she, yeah, spoiler. Geez. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> this girl who is Ozma. There's a scene towards the end where I'm like, is Ozma about to turn evil? Is this Dorothy letting her out, releasing, releasing her into her. the world? Ah, right. So that she can take over. Is there a reason why she's mm. trapped? Mm -hmm. Well, and. To your point, there she's not a smiley, bubbly little girl no. by any means. She has a real weighty presence for a child to refer to people as damaged people. I'm just, clearly this this is a an individual with great gravity beyond her years at the least. So, Dorothy and the ghostly girl, who we'll call her that for right now, escape. They are chased out into the storm by Miss Wilson, the head nurse. They fall into a river, and the ghostly girl vanishes, abandons Dorothy. Or maybe she can only go so far from the insane asylum. Dorothy finds a crate in the river, crawls onto it, and she's washed out to sea. Now, I don't know if you guys know much about geography. 
ain't many C's in Kansas. <laughs> Good point, yeah. <laughs> so we are clearly not in, not Kansas, in Kansas anymore. anymore. <laughs> Dorothy eventually falls asleep. And when she comes to, it's morning. And Belina the chicken is there. Remember, I told you she's going to be an important character. And not only is she there, but she can talk. And not only does she talk, but she's sassy. We have a sassy chicken on our hands. And rather than being in an ocean, which she was the night before, they're just in a small pond. What's that? Oh, I was just trying to lay my head, that's all. Melina? Who else? What are you doing here? Have you been here all night too? Oh, I've never been so wet in my whole life. How big is this pond, anyway? I don't think it's a pond, Melina. I guess it is a pond. Told you so. Where did all the rest of the water go? Where did Kansas go? Some place for a chicken coop. When did you learn to talk anyway? I thought hens could only cluck and cackle. Ah, strange, ain't it? How's my grammar? If we were in the land of Oz, your talking wouldn't be strange at all. Ah, there goes the water. If this is the land of Oz, then this is the deadly desert. Deadly desert? So Dorothy is back in Oz, and they are in the deadly desert. Anything that touches it turns to sand. Dorothy and Belina hop on rocks to safety. Now, we get our first introduction to the claymation rock faces that watch her. One of the faces tells the Gnome King that Dorothy has returned and has a chicken. And also Belina, who for me, I find her annoying. I find this chicken irritating. But this was also during the time that Jim Henson and Star Wars special effects were real popular and a talking animal or animalistic, non-human, good-natured, goofy, wisecracking sidekick was pretty standard, right? So this movie was right in step with all the traditions of the time. He's hitting all the right notes. He's a movie maker and he knows what's current and what's coming. And so he's on it. So it makes sense that she's in here, did either of you actually enjoy our chicken? I thought some of her wisecracks were funny, but I it definitely went over my head as a kid. And as you know, I totally forgot about her as a character. So I I think they easily could have removed her, <laughs> honestly. And no, I'm also just a little they upset. can't. They can't remove her. 
okay, I think they could have found a different way to do what they did with her later. It was okay. But I'm mostly upset by the fact that Toto didn't get to speak in the original film, but this chicken gets to speak. So yeah, that's a good point. Why can't we hear from Toto? I would much rather have a talking Toto. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe it was just, maybe it was just easier to make a puppet out of a chicken. Cause there are points where you can see, cause, (laughs) because this is prior to digital effects, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all practical and she's clearly a puppet in a bunch of the spots. You can see how they have her positioned so they can work the mechanics inside her. But yeah, I agree. I would have much rather seen a talking Toto. So Dorothy and Belina head to the Emerald city to find the scarecrow who she and the wizard had previously left in charge of Oz. The scarecrow is effectively the King of Oz. Well, was when Dorothy left Oz, she finds her old house but Munchkin Land is gone and the yellow brick road is torn up. Something yeah. bad has happened in Oz. Yellow brick road. That infrastructure is crumbling. It looks bad. Yeah, they need an infrastructure bill in Oz. Big time. They needed Joe they Biden ever... to cut a deal for infrastructure. <laughs> Did they ever say how long it's been since she's been back? Because that seems like a lot of destruction in a short amount of time, maybe like a few months. Well, they said that in the very beginning that it had been six months since the okay. tornado, but that doesn't necessarily translate to, to Oz six time. Oz months. Right. Now, we know from later on how and why Oz is destroyed. Mm-hmm. But like you, it seems like it's a longer period of time. It doesn't seem like this is something that's happened in the last six months. Munchkinland did not just disappear and get overgrown in six months. But then again, we're in Oz, so who knows? We've seen enough movies by now to know that it is pretty common when you slip into another dimension or an alternate universe, time tends to expand. Exactly. So it could be six months in Kansas could be six years in Oz or 60 years in Oz. So she and Belina traveled to the Emerald City and find it in ruins. All of its inhabitants have been turned to stone, including the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion. And some of the people are missing their heads. Look, Belina, these ones have lost their heads. Well, that's what I call just plain carelessness. Here we meet the Wheelers. They are a very typical 1980s movie street gang. You got the maniacal laughter. You got leather. You got neon. You got lots of makeup. They have long arms and legs that end in squeaky wheels, which they ride around on. 
They're very reminiscent of the Flying Monkeys, and they are played by the same actors that played the orderlies earlier. So the squeaking gurney Mm -hmm. foreshadowing the wheelers. It's the same sound effect. Yeah, this is the most terrifying scene for me. When I first watched it, I was not expecting to see these human-like creatures on all fours with no hands or feet, but just wheels with this horrific laughing noise emanating from them. It was just quite a shock. It was already sort of creepy to see all these frozen figures everywhere, but just to see these like alive creatures just swoop in and start running after Dorothy was just terrifying. Whenever there's something that just looks human, but it runs around on four legs, it's just disturbing. So that was uh, terrifying. And even now, when I rewatched it, I was like, I'm not going to be scared by the wheelers. It was such a probably little kid fear. They probably look ridiculous, but it was still I still felt that like fear that I had every time that they showed up on screen as a kid when we watched it back together. I think there is something about long limbs mm-hmm. that, that is inherently creepy because I'm just thinking about some instances like. The Slender Man, right? That's one of the big things with the Slender Man myth is the long arms and long legs. I always think about that scene and I don't remember which one it's in. It might be in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. I think it's the first one where there's that scene where Freddy's walking down this alley and his arms are like super long and his claws are scraping against the sides of the alley. And the wheelers have that same kind of energy. We'll call it B-L-E, big leg energy. And I just think that there's something visceral about that. And I came to that from a totally different angle. So my... I, my background and my way of operating the world is, is from an athletic standpoint, very physical and very much embodied. So when I saw the wheelers, my first response to interpreting the wheelers is, oh, this is the send up to the monkeys and they didn't make them apes. So in order to make them ape-like, they elongated the arms because apes, monkeys, most of our primates have a lot longer on the forelegs or the arms than they do on the hinds. So I assumed that was part of the thinking in designing those. The wheelers are in the books. I did look that up. Okay. The wheelers were not created. And the description of the wheelers that I saw from the books are pretty close to what they have there. Now they don't have all the eighties regalia on them. They don't look like they're in a Duran Duran video. (laughs) And it's too bad because that's the only part of this movie that really obviously dates it. So I'm disappointed to see that, but any movie is the product of the time that you're in. So why, why wouldn't they look the way that they do? I already mentioned that she found headless people they were statues because everybody was turned to stone but the cowardly lion is not the cowardly lion of the original movie he's a very very large lion on all fours he's not a guy dressed up in a suit the tin woodsman is clearly not just a human in a suit they really went with what the imagery was in the book because i looked that up i looked at to see 
what the cowardly lion and the tin woodsman and the and the scarecrow look like in the book. And they really tried to go with the book rather than the original film. So the wheelers chase Dorothy and she escapes through a door using the key she found at the farm. And inside she finds TikTok, the mechanical man. He has three winding keys, which is going to be important for the film. One for thinking, one for speech, one for action. He looks like a copper kettle who joined the army in World War I. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us what happened to the Emerald City. I, you, you, uh, mad, mad, but good morning, little girl. Good morning, sir. Are you Dorothy Gale? Yes, sir. Pleased to meet you. I am TikTok, the Royal Army of Oz. His Majesty the Scarecrow locked me in here and told me to wait for you. What happened to the Emerald City? And where is the Scarecrow? I do not know. Suddenly everything living began to turn to stone. When you did not arrive, I called for help until my voice ran down. Then I paced back and forth until my action ran down. Then I stood and thought until my thought ran down. After that, I remember nothing until you wound me up. Thank you. You're welcome. I will say that he seems like a very complete and finished entity. Like he is representing a whole different world really convincingly. He's even more finished to me than the Wheelers are. Like he's credible. Yeah. As whatever he is. You're like, okay, respect for whatever it is that you are and he's explaining it there's a line he has later that's my favorite line that he has and part of him where he says i value my lifelessness so dorothy and tiktok leave the little room that tiktok was in and tiktok beats the hell out of one of the wheelers and basically tortures him into talking You'll be sorry for treating me like this. I'm a terrible, fierce person. I am only a machine, so I cannot be sorry or happy, no matter what happens. Where's the scarecrow? And what's happened to the Emerald City? Answer her. Answer her. The Gnome King. The Gnome King. He conquered the Emerald City. He took all the emeralds. Yeah, he turned everyone to stone. What about the scarecrow? <laughs> there's only there's only one person that knows where the scarecrow is. And that's Princess Princess Mumby. Princess Mumby. I don't remember her. Take us to Mumby. No. 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 This is the first time we hear about Princess Mombi. We get introduced to her in the next scene. The wheeler takes Dorothy and team to her lair, where they do a little light breaking and entering. They enter a great mirrored hall that looks like something out of the Russian Ark, and they meet Princess Mombi playing the mandolin. Note that Princess Mombi in this scene is a lovely young blonde woman. Mombi takes Dorothy into her closet, where we find out that Princess Mombi changes her head like other people change clothes. She has an entire collection and plans to add Dorothy's. Just who might you be? What are you doing here? I'm Dorothy Gale. Dorothy Gale. 
What's happened to the scarecrow? Come nearer to me. The gnome king took the scarecrow and all the emeralds back to his mountain and turned everyone else to stone. You will be rather attractive. One day. Not at all beautiful, you understand, but you'll have a certain prettiness. Different from my other heads. I believe I'll lock you in the tower for a few years till your head is ready. And then I'll take it. I believe you will not. We should note that when Princess Mombi is talking to Dorothy in this scene, her head is not on her shoulders, but being held in front of her. Throughout this entire scene, we get to see a headless body walking around and Princess Mombi openly admitting that she has chopped off other people's heads to use as her own and plans to do the same for Dorothy. Do we think that's appropriate childhood fare? <laughs> no, I think if my mom had walked in at that scene, she would have very much turned the movie off. That was one that I... That was definitely a scene that always uh, freaked me out. And there's a scene with them with the heads later that especially creeped me out as a kid. But yeah, it was definitely a shock when they walked into the closet and seeing, oh, she has heads, a collection of heads and they can talk. That's terrifying. It is very striking. And the fact that these heads are all independently uh, animated. It's not like she's animating one it's waking up when she fastens it atop her neck they're already having their own independent reactions to things so doesn't get much creepier than that belina and tiktok try to rescue dorothy but they fail dorothy is locked in a tower in the tower dorothy meets jack pumpkinhead who is just that Are you sure you're not my mom? I'm sure, Jack. Well, my mother built me to scare that awful witch, Mombi. She stood me in a place where Mombi would meet me face to face. And along she came. Sure enough, she was scared. But then she was angry. She has a terrible temper. I know. Where did she get all those different heads? Did you see the headless dancing girls outside? Mm-hmm. Well, that's where she got them. Anyway, Mombi was about to destroy me with her stick, but she decided to test some powder of life she just bought from a magician. She did. It worked. Here I am. What did you think of Jack Pumpkinhead? Kind of unsettling. I mean, kind of cute, but also unsettling. We knew, I knew instantly that he had a very kid-like demeanor, so he's probably going to be a a good guy. But it's weird hearing sort of a young voice coming from like a stick body with a pumpkin head. I think it's annoying throughout the film, very needy. And uh, the connection he has with Dorothy is a little bit weird, as we'll see later, and how he attaches himself to someone that's probably younger. I think mentally even than he is. So it's a little bit, it's a weird sort of character just in general. I hated (laughs) Jack Pumpkinhead. 
hated him. I wish the witch from the first movie would set him on fire. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he was the worst. Okay, let me recount the ways that I hate Jack Pumpkinhead. His mouth doesn't move, which I just find creepy. His personality is god awful. He's so annoying. His weird fetishization of Dorothy in this film. He opens his eyes or his pumpkin holes. And he says, are you my mom? Can I call you my mom? If someone does that, you call 911. If I just walked up to a stranger and said, can I call you my mom? Even if he says, even if it's not true, that's a psychopath. Right. There's no situation in which there's an adult male voice saying this to a young girl and it not. Can I call you my mom? Yes. You are going to end up at the bottom of a well being told to put the lotion in the basket. But here's the thing. So I felt like when I watched this, I felt like I wasn't supposed to not like him. Am I alone in this? I felt like the movie was putting him out as, hey, here's the likable character. They tried, but it did not work. By contrast, in the Wizard of Oz movie, and I know we've said this follows the books as a sequel and not the movie as a sequel, but in the movie, I've got such a strong fond connection and memory to that scarecrow that I get let down time and time again in this movie because of that, because one Oz ain't that nice and friendly, although Patrick and I had established that actually it, it wasn't, but even on the surface, it didn't have no. the veneer. It did not have the veneer, but also this character an obvious proxy of that scarecrow He's not satisfying in any way. I, you mentioned the mouth not moving. I think that plays a big part in that. And But the big, the only thing that's a bigger disappointment when it comes to the Scarecrow's rendition is the actual Scarecrow who we're going to meet later. So I kind of see these two as, nah, they could be cousins. So Megan, let me depart for a minute. When you saw this movie... Had you not seen the Wizard of Oz movie? Oh, no. I was probably as young as six when I watched The Wizard of Oz. So I was quite familiar with the film. So it was also disappointing to me that I just didn't connect with any of the characters, her sidekicks, as much as I did the first movie. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of other things that I loved about this film, like the action or the adventure, the creepiness. But I just the characters just didn't do it for me. Kat, I want to circle back on something you mentioned earlier that we haven't really talked about. And it didn't really dawn on me until you said it. The set design Mm. in Oz. Oz of our memory is colorful and lively and kind of magical. Now, I understand the reason they went with more of a dour design for this, because we're supposed to believe that Oz has been destroyed by the Gnome King. However. I don't get the sense that the reason this world is drab is because it was destroyed. I get the sense that this world was drab because it's just drab. Yeah. When she's walking through like where Munchkin Land was, it's just like she's in a in some woods outside of Wichita, Kansas. Mm-hmm. None of the external shots of the movie look like what Oz would look like if it had been destroyed. It's almost like they did it on the cheap. Some of the interior designs are really good, but there's not much magic 
behind the set design. So we've met a couple of Dorothy's newfound friends, her new Motley crew here in our Oz reboot. When I was watching this, I have the feeling that I am more uncomfortable in this Oz than Dorothy. Am I the only one who felt that way? Oh, it was not an inviting place. But Dorothy herself is remarkably composed as she is honestly from the beginning. I mean, that was sort of the whole problem with her originally in that she's assured of this reality, this that happened to her. She won't stop talking about it. Once she gets in the insane asylum, she's talking sense to her attackers essentially. And now she's here and she's operating pretty well. Do we see that as a consistent reaction for her comfort level? I don't know if comfort is quite the right word, but her ease, her operational ease in adapting to this new Oz. You know, I, I think you're right about that because she's very mature. She's very calm, cool, and collected in the face of these Bizarre, bizarre, (laughs) and sometimes horrible things, right? I'm not too afraid to say this. If I was nine years old and somebody was standing in front of me and had no head, (laughs) right? (laughs) No, I take that back. They had a head and they removed it, only it wasn't on their shoulders. They were holding it in front of them like a pumpkin. I would not react the way that the Dorothy in this movie reacted. So, Megan, while you watched this and you watched it many times, so you know Dorothy really well, what was your relation to her character in all this? I think she would rather be in Oz than back in Kansas. I think that's kind of established. I think one of the reasons why she goes back to Kansas at the end, spoiler, sorry, everyone, but is just because there's she, no place she like has home. family there. <laughs> yeah, but she has to go back because she has family and, and things like that. But I, I think she would ultimately prefer to stay in Oz. And I think Oz is all she's been thinking about for the last several months. So I think she was just prepared to go back whenever that would be. So she was, and it's just a reality that she would prefer, I think, to the dreary life where she has to survive in, in this very dull atmosphere when she's been exposed to so much fantastical, entertaining things. Um, And in Oz, she's treated almost like a savior. She's a celebrity. Mm. Everybody knows her. True. In Oz, everybody that she comes across is like, you're Dorothy Gale. You're Dorothy Gale. You're Dorothy Gale. (laughs) And later on, we're Dorothy Gale. Everybody knows her. The good people love her. The bad guys fear her. So she is in a completely different position Mm. in Oz than she was back in Kansas where M is about to get, you know, let her ride the lightning, so to speak. So I don't blame her for wanting to be back in Oz because she's a big shot there. Dorothy and Jack escape the tower and rescue TikTok. Dorothy steals the powder of life and discovers Princess Mombi's original head. It's Miss Wilson. 
who looks like Scary Sherry from the old WWF days. And if you don't know what Scary Sherry looks like, Google Scary Sherry. That's what Princess Mombi looks like. Head screams and wakes all the other heads who start screaming, which wake up the headless body of Princess Mombi, which chases Dorothy in an evil dead-like scene. So horrifying scene. Just fantastic. Especially for a nine-year-old. Dorothy's being chased around by a headless body while a head is screaming, Dorothy Gale. Would have been a great time for your mom to walk in, Megan, don't you think? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Dorothy has stolen the powder of life, which the witch had used to bring... Jack pumpkin head to life. Dorothy makes it back to the team and they have made a flying gump, which is something like a green reindeer out of a stuffed mounted head and a sofa uses the powder of life and brings the gump to life. And they fly away. Let's talk about the gump. First of all, they end up on a mountain, which would make him a mountain gump as opposed to his cousin, which is a forest gump. Nothing. No one, no one enjoyed that. Anyway, <laughs> that was a good joke. Anyway, <laughs> so let's talk about the gump. So they bring to life a taxidermied head. It is attached to a sofa, which they also bring to life. It's an abomination. Can we all agree that the gump is an abomination and shouldn't exist? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think the gump is supposed to be the cowardly lion or this version of the cowardly lion. Mm. I'm not entirely sure. The other thing I'll note about the gump is that he is the one person in Dorothy's team that I couldn't discover the foreshadowing in the beginning of the film. So with TikTok. You had the electroshock therapy machine with the tourney key things. Jack, you had the little girl giving Dorothy a jack-o'-lantern. Oh, I've got Belina it. Belina is clearly Belina. So what was the gump? Maybe he was the table that she was strapped down to because he's part furniture. But the gurney is the wheelers because they had the squeaky wheels. Yeah, that's true. So you have the wheelers, you have Princess Mombi. We will later discover the Gnome King was in the beginning. I don't want to watch this movie again, so (laughs) I'm not that interested in it. But it would be interesting to see if there's anybody out there who can figure out what was the Gump analog in Kansas, because I wasn't able to figure it out. Anyway, the Gump sofa is an absolute abomination. Princess Mombi rouses the wheelers. And send them after Dorothy like the flying monkeys and the Wicked Witch in the original movie. And she really wants that chicken. She's really into the chicken because we've established the chicken is an important character in this movie. During the chase, several wheelers fall into the deadly desert and get turned into sand. Eventually, the gump sofa breaks up 
and they crash on the Gnome King's mountain. But don't worry, the Gump is still alive because he's just a head. So they just have a head. This is the necromancy. And finally, we are introduced to the Gnome King. He is the big bad of the movie. And the Gnome King, as we will discover, is played by the same actor who plays the Doctor at the beginning of the movie. So we have now come full circle. We've got everybody except the Gump in Kansas. So the Gnome King, who's the big bad, introduces himself via claymation to Dorothy. He then cracks open the mountain and she falls in. And he explains to her what his motivations are. All the precious stones in the world are made here in my underground dominions. All made for me by my gnomes. So imagine how I feel when someone from the world above digs down and steals my treasures. All those emeralds in the Emerald City really belong to me. I was just taking that what was mine to begin with. So this is the Gnome King's motivation. To this point, we haven't really learned anything about him. We don't know who he is or why he is. This is where he reveals that what he was doing was he was reclaiming the emeralds from Emerald City that he believed were his and probably were. He says that all the precious jewels in the world or in Oz were created by his gnomes and he wanted to take them back because they're his. So does the Gnome King have a point? I think he has a point not to compare an evil villain to the plights of indigenous people throughout the world, but there is a lot going on in the world right now where people are asking like Great Britain, for instance, to return old artifacts or jewels to places where they originally came from and they were stolen from. So I think to some degree, the Gnome King makes a point of you didn't ask for these. You just took them and they meant something to me and my people. But the fact that he destroyed Oz in the process and took over Oz as well and installed a leader and sounds like he wiped out quite a few people. I don't think we ever hear about the munchkins again. (laughs) Are you suggesting genocide of the munchkins? I am. Intense. So I don't think he was completely justified in uh, his response. (laughs) A little heavy handed. I think you're right. I mean, maybe he should have started with a sternly worded letter, maybe a lawsuit. (laughs) Maybe he did. And maybe this is what he had to do. Yeah, because they're not big on lawsuits in Oz. I suppose that the Oz courts are probably unfair to gnomes. The scarecrow packed the Oz Supreme Court with his own cronies. Yeah. They're ruling in his favor. Would not want to be in a lawsuit in Oz. But she is a voice of ethics here because she is urging temperance. She is accusing him of greed. I think it's a key good guy, bad guy kind of moment in here. Because remember, she's a big shot in Oz too. So this is her beginning to emerge as a heroine force here, I think. She's taking him on. She's confronting him. This is where we learn what has happened to the Scarecrow because he's the one character who's been unaccounted for so far. The Gnome King 
tells Dorothy that he has turned the scarecrow into an ornament for his palace. What kind of ornament? He doesn't say. But he challenges Dorothy and her friends, who fell after her, to a game where she can get the scarecrow back. The game involves the team going into his ornament collection. He has a large room. The game involves the team going into the ornament collection one by one to try to identify which ornament the scarecrow is. But if they guess wrong, they get turned into ornaments themselves. And one by one, they enter a giant goatsy cave and fail until only Dorothy is left. And by the way, kids, do not Google goatsy. During this scene, the Gnome King is becoming more and more human until it is clear that he is the evil doctor from the beginning of the movie. He questions Dorothy. Why did you come here? I told you why. You came all this way for a scarecrow. Are you sure you didn't come back to these? My ruby slipper! No, no, no. My ruby slippers. They just fell out of the sky one day. You were so anxious to get home. He has the ruby slippers. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. Twist. The yeah. Gnome King has the ruby slippers. And they are what gave him the power to conquer Oz. And might I add, he looks ridiculous in the ruby slippers. Can we all agree on that? We haven't agreed on much so far. <laughs> but can we agree that he does look ridiculous in the ruby slippers? They, I they think he pulls them off. <laughs> really? Yeah, that is, that is a hot him. take. You think, you think the Gnome King looks good in the ruby slippers? Everyone looks good in ruby slippers. <laughs> I like the special effect they do because it's what they obviously do is he's got the ruby slippers out and or no, he's got the ruby slippers in and he pushes them out and then they play it in reverse. So it looks like the ruby slippers are consumed by his robes. I thought it looked ridiculous. I thought these little girl ruby slippers on a grown ass man looked dumb, but I am obviously in the minority in this podcast. It's the pop of color over the neutrals yeah. thing with combined with a bold persona. I think she's got a point. <laughs> I'll concede. <laughs> I don't know much about fashion. I love that the ruby slippers return. They are still of powerful. They're the vehicle of power and they're still a powerful, desirable commodity. So that's an important structure in Oz that we can feel comfortable again. Okay, we're rooted back in some semblance of structure that we understand this reality. Okay, haven't mentioned this, but it is important for no reason whatsoever. Belina the chicken is in Jack's head. Oh, yeah. So disturbing. It's almost like the chicken subplot is important here. But it's key because she's in jack's head and the gnome king doesn't know she's there because she's got to be hidden from the gnome king because that's going to be important yeah does anybody but the gnome king and his henchmen know that no but for plot purposes she's got to stay hidden meanwhile princess mombi is on her way to the gnome king's castle in a chariot pulled by the wheelers 
who she is furiously whipping. This reminded me of the situation with the Wicked Witch and the Flying Monkeys. Oh, yes. Remember how when we covered The Wizard of Oz, one of the things we teased out was the Wicked Witch's relationship with Mm -hmm. the Flying Monkeys and the guards, that they were her slaves. They were not willing participants in her evil schemes. Yes. I got the same sense from Princess Mombi and the Wheelers in this scene because she's literally whipping them to get them moving. So I don't think that there's anything inherently evil about the Wheelers. I think they're a victim in this just everybody else. They're slaves. They're livestock. They're an army. They're servants. They do the bidding. While Princess Mombi is on her way to the castle, Dorothy is being tempted by the Gnome King to abandon her friends who have failed to find the ornament in the cave. She refuses and goes into the cave by herself. Dorothy figures out that all of her friends were turned into something green and frees them all, including the Scarecrow, who is horrifying. This is the first time we meet the Scarecrow. So, Kat, it sounds like you have strong feelings about the Scarecrow. So I'll let you have the floor on this version of the Scarecrow. I'll tell you, I didn't read the books, but I did really enjoy the Scarecrow character from the 1939 movie. My favorite character in the whole movie was the Scarecrow. And... I was really looking forward to getting back to that scarecrow or at least some semblance of when we got to this point in this interpretation. And wow, that was not what happened at all. This is supposed to be the the same scarecrow. This scarecrow is downright frightening. It's just this side of an inanimate object doesn't have movable features and yet there are these almost cartoonish sequences in which we move from shot to shot of the scarecrow and his affixed expression has changed to a different affixed feature expression which makes it even creepier there's just nothing to remind you of that warm scarecrow and nothing to an Apparently look at him and find him to be endearing or even approachable. Like I'm surprised that this was the object of Dorothy's devotion and affection at this point, because what did she see in this guy kind of movement? Yeah. And you compare the scarecrow and Jack with, I guess, Bolina, whatever. Yeah. And TikTok, because even though TikTok doesn't have a mouth that moves, his mustache moves. Ah. Right. So he does have some mouth movements in some way. Even the gump talks. The gump is a puppet. Even though he's an abomination and a cursed, he's still more approachable, maybe is the word, than the Scarecrow and Jack. There's just something about that frozen face. They're just with no expressions, no movements, no nothing that just makes it terrifying. They're horrid, oversized poppets. So you have no way of knowing what they're about. 
it's sort of the yeah. same kind of revulsion that you might feel toward a spooky doll. And that's right. When you talk about a horror genre going back, let's talk about slashers. What makes Michael Myers so frightening that his facial expression never changes? What makes Jason frightening? You never see his face. It's just emotionless. It's nothing. That's a very common trope within horror films. That's something inherently scary is the mask, the lack of emotion. Even going back to our Little House on the yes. Prairie episode. Right. The attacker right? in the, that had a super Yeah, the, the, clown, the clown mask emotion. thing that they mask. had on. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why those are used in horror because it just seems scary to people. So, okay. So in all those instances, you're saying that that is a sinister. So what I am puzzled about this in seeing a movie, which with some genuinely sophisticated technology in it and special effects, let's say special effects in it. Why is it that these supposedly sympathetic characters have this very pronounced, deliberate, sinister stereotype attribute of these fixed doll-like expressions. Why? A very odd decision. Now, we stated at the beginning, I have not read the books. I highly doubt that L. Frank Baum wrote it, that the Scarecrow and Jack Pumpkinhead were emotionless zombies. <laughs> but even if he did... The person who directed this movie knows what the connotation of that is and how that comes across. Yeah. I just don't understand because like you said, this is 1985. This is not 1935. Yeah. Things that were coming out around the same time, you're talking about Labyrinth right. and, and Dark Crystal. Henson's universe. Yeah. You've got Even all those, you've got all those Henson movies that have come out. They had the ability <laughs> to somehow animate those faces. All right. Okay. So, Mombi gets to the castle, and the Gnome King turns on her. Not a very loyal patron. He then transforms into a claymation kaiju for the final boss battle of the movie, and it is a final boss battle. He generates gargoyles to chase the team around while he tries to eat them. <laughs> when he tries to eat Jack, Chekhov's chicken comes home to roost. An egg that Belina has laid in Jack's head falls into the Gnome King's mouth. poisonous to gnomes it's a deus egg machina i think that's because eggs represent life and he does not he's destruction what do you think of that i hadn't even thought of any symbolism around that whatsoever i just thought it was a dumb thing that happened in the movie but you could be onto something everything that he represents is death <laughs> or no 
It is it death though? Destruction. It's not even life. It's the opposite of it. He's a rock. Well, you know what rocks do? They stop force. Even if they don't strike, even if they're passive, what they do is they stop force. So in that sense, he's stopping life. He's stopping motion. He's stopping development, evolution, growth. And an egg is exactly the opposite of that. An egg is just the beginning of development and growth. Okay, so with the Gnome King dead, Dorothy retrieves the ruby slippers and wishes everything in Oz back to normal. Still doesn't look like the old Oz. Still looks pretty drab. The Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow are all reunited. Princess Mombi is marched through the city in a cage, presumably headed for a surprisingly ineffectual guillotine. And for some reason, Dorothy wants to go home. The ghostly girl appears in the mirror. We learn that this is Princess Ozma, the rightful queen of Oz. And Dorothy frees her. Okay, this is where I had a definite the ring feeling. She was freeing Princess Ozma. But I was half waiting for something to happen. Like, no, don't free her. We put her in there for a reason. She's evil and setting it up for the return to the return to Oz. Yeah, you could definitely see that as a possible direction for this to go. Ozma takes the throne. Dorothy gives her the ruby slippers again. Maybe this was Ozma's plan all along. Everybody wants them. And that's where we discover that Ozma is Jack's real mom, or is she? See, I had a question because he said, oh, that's my mom. Are we sure it's actually his oh. mom? Because <laughs> He's cried mom before. <laughs> he, yes, the boy who cried mom. She doesn't address him as her son, does she? No, she <laughs> totally ignores him. But she's the mother of Oz, so that's yes. the The way the queen was the queen, the mother of Britain, whatever. Oz, but mother. he goes, "Oh, that's my real mom." Are we sure, or is he's he just a crazy to be person? Prince. Ah, he wants to be Prince of Oz. Makes sense. Before Dorothy got there, I bet he thought Mombi was his mom, and then Dorothy gets there and he sees which way the winds are blowing, <laughs> and he's like. Dorothy, are you my mom? Then later on in the movie, he sees Dorothy stepping aside, Ozma, you know, stepping onto the throne. She's got the ruby slippers. And he's like, did I say Dorothy was my mom? <laughs> That's my mom. So you're saying he's just an opportunist. I think that Jack is evil. I think he's secretly evil. You know, there's that, that fan theory that in The Phantom Menace, Jar Jar Binks is actually a, an evil Sith Lord. I think. That Jack is really the, he's like Littlefinger in Game of Thrones. He's playing the long game. So I wonder what becomes of him in future books. I'm going to have to find out about that. But I want to make a sequel to this movie where it turns out that Jack is really evil. And the next time Dorothy comes back to Oz, Princess Ozma's head is on a pike. Probably next to the Scarecrow's head, because if Ozma's dead, the Scarecrow's going to want to take over, and Jack can't tolerate that. Maybe he's the one who cut off 
Mombi's head. This is my fan theory. We're going to build on this. Jack Pumpkinhead is secretly the evil mastermind behind this whole thing. So the expressionless face, it wasn't in spite of his personality. It was because Because of of his personality. So Dorothy is wished back to Kansas where she is found by Toto, Uncle Henry, and Ann M, who acts like she is perfectly innocent. We learn that the doctor is dead after the asylum was struck by lightning and burned down. So there were people trapped in the basement that nobody knew about. And the hospital burned down and they said, oh, the doctor died. Did just the doctor die? I don't think they would have gotten the people out of the basement. But Ozma might have. She might have taken them all to Oz and saved them. Yeah, that sounds like something you'd tell their parents and their kids. Oh, Chester went to Oz. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Chester's in a shallow grave on the other side of the property. So the damaged people are on the roof is what you're saying? (laughs) Yes, precisely. Yeah. No, all those people are dead. Okay. No one's talking about it. Everybody's just sweeping it under the rug because, hey. It's 1899. Bunch of dead people in asylum. That just gets swept under the rug. Maybe they didn't know because they're keeping it a secret. Like they're in the basement. That's what I mean. Oh, okay. That's exactly what I meant. Because Ozma says those are the damaged people who got locked in the basement. So there were people locked down there when that place caught on fire. There are a lot of dead people that are unaccounted for. And it's an asylum. So they probably didn't even know all the people that were in there casualties casualties of war i will say when the doctor dies after the asylum is struck by lightning i find that reminiscent of the witch of the east being struck by the house in a tornado oh natural disaster yeah and at the end of the movie we get one last shot of ozma visiting dorothy in a mirror because she says to dorothy before she leaves that she's going to stop in and check on her from time to time. Dorothy is back home. Apparently, Aunt M has changed her mind and it doesn't have her locked in a, an insane asylum any longer. And they all live happily ever after. Or do they? This is the one and only shot of Ozma where I feel like, okay, we're supposed to be reassured of her character in this. She does look very yes. comfortable in her ending role here in her circumstances like she has she is finally where she has belonged all along and we can i feel a a degree of trust her at this point did you both feel that this was the one shot where i didn't have in the back of my mind that she was actually going to try to kill dorothy this was actually one of my favorite parts in the movie where she's in the mirror as a kid that really wanted more friends. It was really awesome to see. Oh my gosh, she's just, I can just summon a friend in the mirror whenever I'm lonely or something. It was, I was like, oh, I really wish I could be Dorothy and have a friend like Ozma and then go to be, and be able to go to Oz whenever I want. That'd be super cool. So with that being said, Megan returned to Oz as scary, just as scary or more scary than you remember it. Overall, Less scary because, for one thing, I knew pretty much everything that happened. 
I remembered everything since I've watched it so many times. So nothing was really a surprise. Uh, the only thing that like I didn't remember was honestly Belinda's character. So the ending was qu- quite a shock and a little bit disappointing. I mean, they were definitely looking at it from an adult's perspective. It's I can't believe I watched that. There are some things that went over my head as a kid, like the, the Saint Asylum was creepy because you felt unsafe in there as a kid. But knowing the background of the Saint Asylums, as I've gotten older, like from reading history, it makes it even more creepy from the standpoint of I can't believe Auntie M actually took her child there mm-hmm. and just left her. And I can't believe people actually that this that these atrocities happened. And also, I didn't think about this until you guys mentioned this, but the fact that like her Auntie M and Uncle Henry really relied on her to help them with the farm is horror in of, in of itself, because back then you're really like against nature. And so you need all the help you can get. And the fact that he was depressed as well is foreboding in, in the sense of they might not make it in the winter if... Dorothy's not on board and Uncle Henry's not on board. Yeah, so that adds another layer. But so it's more of a like a sadness than a a fear or like a concern for characters well-being. Thank you. Thank you, Megan, for that very thoughtful reflection. So listening to what you're saying about your takeaway from this movie and your feeling with the last scene then what I'm taking as a lesson of this movie, if it has one, is that for this child, for any child who is up against it from so many forces, which should be in their favor, in all of this conflict where they can turn for comfort and hope is in the mirror. Megan and Kat, I want to thank you both for joining us today. And I'd like to thank our listeners. We will be back soon with another episode of Childhood Fears Revisited. Copyright 2022, Patrick Dobbins and Kat Ricker, all rights reserved.